You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm very pleased that you could join me for this question and answer program, I guess, video program, podcast. We record it Thursday afternoons, 12 noon Pacific time. And then, of course, many people watch it or listen to it afterwards. Uh, My customary pattern is to begin with a lead question that comes in by email or a comment to a video or something like that. And so this particular day, I'm going to begin with the question, uh, is penance different from repentance? And this question comes from Louise. She writes this. Hi, Pastor David. I was wondering if you could explain what penance is after confessing sin and repentance. Thank you, and God bless you. Okay, Louise, let me give you the best way I can answer this question. In the thinking of most religious people, penance is what a person does to demonstrate their repentance. Now, some people consider penitence, excuse me, penitence, to be sorrow over sin in the heart and in the mind, and penance, two words that sound very similar, but they're different words, penitence and penance. Penance is the action that someone does or is willing to do when they're sorry over their sin. Now, this term penance is commonly used among Roman Catholics in particular. Though we need to take pains to say, though not only among Roman Catholics, there are other Christian traditions that have this concept of penance and kind of have their own variation on it. Uh, Orthodox believers, Anglicans, Lutherans, as well, no doubt, as some other groups have their own ideas of penance. But in the Roman Catholic idea, penance is what the confessing priest assigns you to do after you confess to demonstrate your repentance. So you go into the confessional, you confess your sins to uh, the priest, and he says in return, um, okay, this is your penance. Commonly, it would be something like this. Say, five Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys, or something like that. And so I can remember as a boy uh, being raised sort of a nominally Roman Catholic, uh, going into the confessional and uh, having the priest give me an assignment. And it could very well be something like that. And you would go inside the church proper uh, and kind of kneel down on the steps leading up to the platform of the altar. And I would say my five Our Fathers and my ten Hail Marys. And that was my penance. Um, Of course, the priest could also assign other things to be one's penance, but that's a very common way to do it, is to assign a certain number of prayers to pray. Now, the Roman Catholic Church even carried this idea to the point that you could do your penance ahead of time. In the year 1095, so we're talking, you know, 900 years ago, Pope Urban II called for the First Crusade, And he promised the remission of all penance to those who fought in the crusade to liberate the Holy Land. Uh, Later, the popes extended that remission of all penance to those who simply gave money to support the crusades and then on to other causes as well. So the idea is simply this. By their soldiering or by their money, these people pre-bought their penance. Now, obviously, when you start getting into this, This is obviously a twisting of any kind of biblical idea for these things. When Martin Luther wrote his 95 theses to question practices in the Roman Catholic Church, number 36 of Luther's 95 theses is simply this. Every Christian who is truly contrite and has has complete remission of both penance of guilt as is his due, even without a letter, of pardon from the Pope. You see, Luther was trying to get back to the idea that penance, or more properly repentance, is something that we do before God. Uh, It's not something that's assigned to us by a priest. Now, 
it's important to understand. Let's leave aside penance just for a moment and talk about repentance. Repentance is necessary, but it does not pay for our sins. And that's one of the worst aspects of any system of penance that makes the sinner feel as if they are paying for their sin by the practice. There is no number of our fathers or no number of Hail Marys that can pay for my sin. Only what Jesus did on the cross pays for our sins. So I would say it like this. Confession of sin is important. We remember what it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a precious promise that is, but it's based on a condition. If we confess our sins, we need to openly and honestly confess our sins before God. But then there's a second aspect too. James chapter 5, verse 16, tells us that we should be confessing our trespasses or our sins to each other in the body of Christ. And there is a place for confessing our sins before others. So confession of sin is important. And repentance is important. I can't stress this strongly enough. Repentance is important. You could say that repent was the first word in the preaching of John the Baptist. We read in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, that it says this, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message, repent, or at least the beginning of his message, repent. You, you could say that the beginning of Jesus' preaching in his public ministry was repentance. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 tells us this. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This call to repent, it was in the mouth of John the Baptist. It was in the mouth of Jesus in his preaching. It was in the mouth of the 12 disciples. It was in the mouth of Jesus's final instructions to his disciples. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47 say this. Then he said to them, it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die, uh, suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. When Peter preached to the crowd uh, on the day of Pentecost, he told them to repent again and again. Repentance is very important. And repentance is not something that just begins the Christian life. Repentance is something that is ongoing throughout the Christian life. We repent and then we keep repenting as the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and as we become aware of it. So confession is important. Repentance is very important. Penance, in the any sense of paying for our sins, especially with a religious ceremony, that's not good. Now, somebody could say, they can make this argument, well, penance is just demonstrating repentance. And if penance were to mean restitution, uh, if it were mean to try to make right wrongs that you have done, um, it, it, that is okay. But I would just say stay away from that terminology altogether. Penance connotates a religious ceremony and one that in some sense pays for our sin. We believe what Jesus said at the cross with his last breath before yielding his spirit to his father Jesus said, it is finished. In other words, it's paid in full. And if Jesus Christ paid for my sins, then I don't need to pay for them in the sense of satisfying God in that sense. Now, one other thing. When people replace the word repentance with penance, or especially with the word penitence, it puts the emphasis on how someone feels so when they hear the word penitence or repentance, this is what they hear. I need to feel sorry for my sin. Let me tell you, 
the emphasis in the New Testament word for repentance, that's metanoia, the emphasis is not on feeling sorry for your sin. The emphasis is on turning from your sin, doing a 180, having a change of mind, a change of action corresponding to the change of mind. So I hope that helps you, Louise. Um, there is a difference And I think it's better to just speak with the biblical terminology of confession and repentance. The idea or the word penance is one that just doesn't need to be introduced into the conversation. All right. Let me look over the questions that have come in here to the live chat here. First of all, from Tyler says, how can I be seated with Christ in the heavenly places if I'm still sitting upon the earth? Ephesians chapter two, verse six. Well, Tyler, I would just explain it to you simply this way, is that obviously when Paul refers being uh, seated with Christ in heavenly places, as he does make mention of in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that we have been raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's a few things Paul's talking about there. First of all, he's talking about our ultimate destiny. It's to be with Jesus in heaven. But then also, how that ultimate destiny is so real that there's a spiritual aspect of it that can be true and present right now. So the, the writers of the New Testament, and maybe I should say specifically the Holy Spirit that inspired them, there is no uh, doubt that we live, we walk on this earth. But there is a spiritual sense in which our life is hidden in Jesus Christ. We are, and this is an important concept in the New Testament, this idea of the oneness of the believer with Jesus Christ. And that oneness, in a spiritual sense, is so real that if he is seated in heavenly places, we are seated in heavenly places. We are brought into real abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's simply how I'd say it. He's speaking of something that will be in every sense a future reality and in the present time it is a spiritual reality so thank you there for your question there tyler next question comes from jane pastor david when the millennial kingdom comes everyone will worship jesus when will all other believers go away and how all together gradual okay jane i'll give you my understanding of this and of course i think it's the correct understanding you know it kind of goes without saying but I don't knowingly hold any wrong beliefs about the scriptures. If I knew it was a wrong belief, I wouldn't hold to it anymore. And of course, just like everybody, I suppose there's aspects of things that we grow in, that we learn over the decades. I think that's certainly true. Uh, however, this is what I believe the Bible teaches. That first of all, when Jesus returns in glory, there will be a judgment of the nations to determine who is allowed to go into the millennial kingdom and who just simply goes to Hades awaiting the final judgment. So that will eliminate some people. And I don't know if I um, say the worship or the recognition that everyone will be required to give in the millennium will really only be an outward recognition and worship. Everyone will be required to submit to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. If they will not, they will certainly be punished immediately. As it says in the scriptures that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron when the Messiah rules over the millennial earth. I mean, that means a, a, um, a very strict uh, rulership over the earth. But All that will be regulated will be the outward actions of people. We know that not everyone on the earth, in the millennial earth, is truly worshiping Jesus, because at the end of the millennium, when Satan is released, this is described in the book of Revelation, chapters 20, uh, chapter 19 and 20, I should say. When this happens, Satan is immediately able to gather some kind of multitude to help him oppose God all over again. So it will really be the outward form of worship that is required, respect, honor towards Jesus Christ, 
the inward thing will still be a matter of the heart for each individual. So there'll be that initial screening, if you will, that judgment of the sheep and the goats that's described for us in Matthew chapter 25. And then in addition to that, there will be um, the outward uh, rule, uh, excuse me, the outward regulation of Jesus that everybody will honor and worship and respect him. Let me continue on here. Luis says, Matthew chapter 11, verse 19 says, they called Jesus a drunkard. Does this mean that Jesus did drink alcohol? Thanks in advance. Luis, I believe that Jesus drank what was commonly uh, drank. I guess that's the proper verb form. What they commonly drank in his day which was a wine that was quite watered down. It didn't have the same alcohol proportion that our wine would today, though if you were determined to drink enough, you could certainly become drunk. But uh, we have every reason to believe that Jesus drank what people commonly drank in that day. And there are many reasons why people drank wine, that watered down wine in Jesus's day. Uh, the first being that uh, that process of fermentation had a purifying uh, aspect to the water with the many microbes and they didn't have the filtration systems that modern world has. It could be healthier to drink that, that uh, form of wine that they drank back then. I have read the arguments that try to make the case that what Jesus drank was unfermented wine. It was essentially grape juice. I have to say that I have found those arguments unpersuasive. I, I haven't been persuaded by those arguments, though I have read them and considered them. So I would say that Jesus drank what was commonly uh, done in that day. He drank that wine that was watered down to some extent. We know that in Jesus's ceremonial meals, the Passover celebrations with his disciples, certainly he drank wine. There's really no reason to believe that he didn't drink it at other times as well. Now, what we do know is that Jesus Christ was never drunk. He was never impaired in his faculties from drinking too much wine or any other alcoholic beverage, because being drunk is a sin, and Jesus did not and would not sin in this way. Okay, continuing on, uh, Bina says, Pastor... Could you please share your opinion on the rapture? Okay, well, Bina, I'm happy to. I'll do it in a very brief way. Uh, if you go to other places on my YouTube channel, you can find uh, videos. And then on my own website, EnduringWord.com, you can certainly find it with the relevant passages, with my Bible commentary, uh, but then also with um, specific teachings I do on the rapture of the church. Um, but I'll tell you just very briefly what I believe. I believe in what is classically termed to be the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I know that there are many people today who mock that idea. There are people who, it seems very strange to me, they mock the idea of the rapture at all. Listen, I just believe what it says in 1 Thessalonians, that Jesus Christ is going to catch away the church, and he's going to come and the church will meet him in the clouds. If that makes me a crazy person or radical, well, I'll take that title gladly. Um, I, I'm really not impressed by those arguments that try to make people who believe in the pre-tribulation rapture feel like they're stupid or something. I don't care about that whatsoever. It says there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that, if I could turn to it here, it's a good passage to read. Um 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, I said chapter 4, but actually it's chapter, uh, yeah, it is chapter 4. Um, for the Lord himself will descend, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. I believe that. Now, as for when exactly that happens, how it happens in the outworking of God's prophetic plan, um, I would—I am a person that believes that 
Jesus Christ will return to this earth and then set up his kingdom. I believe that's the arrangement of things. I don't believe that God will work through the church to set up the kingdom, then Jesus returns. So that makes me pre-millennial. I do believe in a literal reign of Jesus Christ over this earth for a thousand years. That makes me millennial. Makes me pre-millennial that I think Jesus will return first and then set up the kingdom. And I also believe that there will be a unique seven-year period before the glorious return of Jesus, and that the rapture will happen before that seven-year period or at the very start of it, making me what's known as a pre-tribulation rapturist. So for the reasons why I believe that, I've got specific teaching on that. I believe it's on my YouTube channel, but certainly it's on the um, website, and you can find that. Thank you, Pina. Johnson says, Praise the Lord, Pastor David. We're so blessed by your ministry. We pray that the Almighty would continue to use you mightily in his kingdom. Can you explain what is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? Okay, Johnson, that's a very interesting thing because there are some people who want to make a significant distinction between the idea of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And I've read what those people uh, are trying to get at when they try to make that case, that there's some distinction to be made between that. I just simply don't agree with that. I believe that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are almost always just simply used as interchangeable terms in the New Testament. I don't believe there's a distinction between them, especially knowing, for example, that that phrase, kingdom of heaven, appears many times in the gospel of Matthew, which was written for a Jewish audience. And we also know this, that many times uh, Jews in both the modern world, but also in the ancient world, they would substitute words for the word God because they didn't want to, in their mind, break the second commandment by taking the name of God in vain. So they would often use placeholders for the word God. One of the placeholders they would use was heaven. So it's not strange at all to hear a first century Jew speak of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven as being the same thing, because they would often use the word heaven as a placeholder for the name God. So uh, yeah, Johnson, I would just say, I. I have yet to be persuaded. If somebody out there knows the all-time greatest case for making a distinction between, forward that to me, maybe I'll look it over again, but I have not been persuaded to this point that there's a difference between the two ideas. Okay, next question comes from Jesse. Pastor David, what's a great resource on how to study the Bible verse by verse, books, etc.? Okay, I'm going to look over here to my library. I'll show you an old edition of a great book to begin with. Uh, it has come out in a newer edition. It has something of a blue cover. But this book by Max Anders, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible, this is a great survey of the Bible for a person to get a good comprehensive view of what the Bible's all about. This is something that many people, even people who've been Christians and Bible students for some years miss. They don't have a framework for understanding the Bible as a whole, how the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation progresses as important. So if you lack that knowledge, this is a great book. It's kind of like a workbook and you just go through it and work it and it's very helpful. That's one book I would begin with. But then the other thing I would do is just simply, uh, well, okay, I'll, Jesse, you asked, and so I'll answer. I think that my online commentary is very helpful for people who just want to walk verse by verse through the Bible. That's what I do in my Bible commentary. Go to EnduringWord.com. It's also available at Blue Letter Bible, that is blb.org. Go to those websites, look for my commentary through the scriptures, pick up the book of the Bible, read the text, and just walk through it with me together. I think that will help a person uh, just to understand the Bible and to learn how to study it. When we see other people studying well and making good understanding and observation about the text, uh, that helps us. 
A third thing I would recommend is take what's called an inductive Bible study course. Um, an inductive Bible study course can be very, very helpful, just teaching you how to properly ask questions and what questions to ask as you're going through a Bible text. And let me give you one more thing. I, this is something that I, I recommend to people often. I want to recommend to you, Jesse, that you read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, use a notebook and a journal, and write a one-sentence summary of every chapter of the Bible. That's it. Not more than a sentence. You're not writing a commentary. You're trying to boil down what happened or the meaning of that chapter in one sentence. I've done that a couple times uh, when I was a younger Christian. And let me tell you, that was very meaningful. And then when you're all done, you got a notebook or a journal that's going to be very precious to you. So read through the entire Bible and write a one-sentence summary of every chapter. You'll be blessed for doing it. Okay, let me continue on here. Jennifer asks, blessing pastors, in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. How was the thief on the cross born again? Thank you. Well, Jennifer, um, Jesus completed his work at the cross. That's what instituted the new covenant. Now, honestly, we don't know exactly when the thief on the cross died. Oh, no. Oh, well, I, I'm going to take that back. We know that the thief on the cross, both of them, lived longer than Jesus because they had to have their legs broken on the cross, and Jesus had already yielded his life to God the Father uh, on the cross. Before the thief on the cross died, Jesus had paid for his sins and instituted the new covenant. The way was open for him to be born again by God's Spirit and to receive that. But there's a sense, Jennifer, in which you're asking, um, you know, Jesus was speaking sort of of his work going on. Um, there will be people who enter the kingdom of heaven who lived and died before Jesus. There's really no doubt about that. But they were paid, their sins and their salvation was purchased by what Jesus would do on the cross. And I believe that they waited for Jesus to finish that final work on the cross. They waited for him in Hades. So Jennifer, I hope that answers your question. Um, but Jesus instituted this. The, the new covenant was instituted by the death of Jesus. And that happened, specifically speaking, regarding the thief on the cross. That happened before the thief on the cross died. Okay, let me go on. T uh, gives a question here. Can you explain Isaiah chapter 60, verses 10 through 16? It says that the heathens will build up the Israelites' kingdom. If this Is this true? If not, does that mean that Isaiah is a false prophet? Um, I, Acts chapter 1, verse 6 says the kingdom is for Israel. Well, see, I think I would best answer your question uh, if you go back to Isaiah, and there are many, many passages in the book of Isaiah that speak of this ultimate kingdom that God would establish. Specifically, you're talking about Isaiah chapter 60. I'll just read the first uh, few verses, starting at verse 10. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night, which men shall bring you the wealth of the Gentiles and all their kings in procession. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. Okay, I, I think this finds its ultimate fulfillment. You could say that it has a lesser imperfect fulfillment in the regathering of Israel after the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles but it has its perfect fulfillment in the millennial kingdom to come. One of the things I think that the Bible makes very clear about the millennial kingdom to come, which will be established by Jesus Christ, is simply this, is that Israel will be the superpower of the world. How strange that is. Little Israel, 
uh, Israel that is a fairly population-wise and geographical size-wise is a fairly insignificant nation, God will make Israel the leading nation of the world. And really, I, I don't have any problem with these many prophecies. I mean, T, you quoted there from Isaiah chapter 60, but you could have quoted from many passages in the Old Testament that speak of the ultimate restoration and exaltation of Israel in the coming kingdom. And I think that that'll be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. So uh, your thought there that uh, doesn't mean that Isaiah is a false prophet. Well, absolutely not. This will happen. Uh, and God has promised that it'll happen. It's very much a part of God's covenant promise uh, in the new covenant, actually, um, which is sort of an interesting idea there. So uh, thank you for that. Um, I'll just go on to your next question, get to yours in a moment here, uh, Luciana. But T also says, Revelation 21, verse 12, says that the kingdom of heaven has only has entrances for the 12 tribes of Israel. Where, do, where does the heathens fit in the kingdom of heaven? Well, uh, T, I think I'm going to push back on you just a little bit there. Um, Revelation chapter 21, verse 12. If I could turn to that in my Bible here and read Revelation 21, 12 says, also, she had great and high, uh, a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 uh, angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Well, T, Revelation chapter 21, verse 12 really doesn't say anything that it's only the children of Israel that can enter in through those gates. It just doesn't say anything about that. It just says that there will be gates and the names of the tribes of Israel will be written over those gates. And I'm sure in heaven, we're going to see those things. You'll see that when you get to heaven, T. Uh, so I, I don't have any doubt about that. But nowhere uh, is there given that exclusionary word that you referred to there in Revelation chapter 21, verse 12. So thank you for that, T. Let me go on to Luciana's question. Uh, Luciana says, Hi, Pastor David. What did Jesus mean when he said that he wouldn't drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day he drinks it new in the kingdom of God? Mark chapter 14, verse 25. Okay, Luciana, I, I got to say, I find this a bit of a difficult question um, because I, the plainest sense seems that Jesus contradicted him. The plainest sense might say, Jesus said, I'm not going to drink of any grape products, anything that comes forth from a vineyard. I'm not going to drink any of that until um, everything is resolved in the kingdom of God. Yet, uh, Jesus did receive some kind of sour wine product, vinegar product, uh, at the cross, he did not drink the stupefying wine that they often gave to those people who were being crucified. But he did take that refreshing vinegar drink that they would refer to as sour wine. Um, he took that to clear his throat. Uh, and it, it would seem that in the many post-resurrection appearances that Jesus had with disciples— I can't recall the specific instance, but it would have seemed normal that Jesus, as he ate with the disciples, might have drank wine then as well. I've kind of settled on the idea that especially giving the setting in which Jesus said that, he said it at a Passover meal, that that was the context that Jesus was speaking of. I'm not going to drink again of this. Well, this isn't a Passover cup, of course, but I did want to drink a water. Jesus says... I'm not going to drink of this wine again. I'm not going to celebrate another Passover until I celebrate it together with all my people in the kingdom. It's a way of saying this. The next Passover is the wedding supper of the Lamb. I really think, given the context of when Jesus said that, that that's what he's referring to. He's not so much referring to the, the liquid in the cup. That's not the emphasis. Uh but really the emphasis there is just that plain, simple idea that, no, we are going to gather together in the kingdom, and Jesus is not going to celebrate another Passover until he does it collectively with all his people. Thank you for that, Luciana. 
Valeria says, whoops, I just lost my place here. Let me go back. Valeria says, Pastor David, first I want to thank you for your daily devotionals. Very grateful. Can you please pray for my physical and emotional healing? Thank you. God bless you all. Well, let's do that right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray for our dear sister Valeria. And we just pray, God, that you would meet her needs. Lord, she needs physical healing. She needs spiritual healing. She needs emotional healing. We come to you as the great physician, and we pray, Lord, that you would do just that in her life. Father, I pray that not only for Valeria, but for anybody who might have a similar need, who's watching this either live or at a later time, that they would look to you, put their trust in you, and that you would be the beautiful, powerful God who meets their need. Do it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, going on, um, Nazgi says, hello, Pastor David. Will the temple of Jerusalem be built again? Uh, yes, I believe it will. I believe it will. And again, this is a thought that is mocked by many people, but doesn't really bother me that they mock it. Um, yes, I think that there will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. I, as I look at the Olivet Discourse, what Jesus preached, recorded in Matthew chapter 24, the key idea in Jesus's message is the abomination of desolation. And the most literal, straightforward understanding of the abomination of desolation, especially understanding that in an Old Testament context, the most straightforward understanding of what that is, is that it is an idolatrous image standing in the Holy of Holies. Well, to have a Holy of Holies, you need to have a temple. Now, I'm talking about geography. I know that there's a spiritual sense in which we individually and collectively are the people of God, are the temple of God. The Bible talks about that in a spiritual sense, but it, it doesn't use the terminology of uh, in the Holy of Holies or in the Most Holy regarding that spiritual picture. So it's true in a spiritual sense, the people of God are the temple of God. But um, in my mind, the most straightforward, understandable reading of this is regard that there will be a future abomination of desolation. And for that to happen, there will be some kind of temple rebuilt, presumably upon the Temple Mount. Um, so hope that helps you there. Jennifer says, sorry, one more question. When reading Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, what does he mean, I will turn my hand against the little ones? Zechariah chapter 13, verse 17. Well, let me see if I can find that passage quickly here. Zechariah chapter 13. Whoops. Verse seven, to, or verse 7 says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Okay, very interesting you bring this up, Jennifer. That is clearly, because it's quoted in the New Testament, that is clearly a messianic prophecy. And the little ones talked about there are the disciples of Jesus Christ. So that is a messianic prophecy. It was fulfilled in what Jesus did in his betrayal, his arrest, and his sufferings. And so uh, he was the shepherd savior there in that simple context. And the little ones there really refers to the disciples of Jesus. Uh, it's not referring to like little children. That's just not the context. He's speaking in this prophetic, you know, uh, poetic language and that's simply reference, and we know this really on very solid ground based on how that passage is quoted in the New Testament. So thank you for that, Jennifer. Jose says, Catholics say the Virgin Mary is a queen because in Luke chapter 21, Luke chapter 1, verse 28, in the King James Version, the angel salutes Mary saying, hail. They say hail is only used for queens or kings. Your thoughts please. Um, Jose, I would just say um, that's really incorrect. All someone has to do 
is realize what the New Testament says. Go to the New Testament word that is translated hail in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, and then see how that's used in common usage at the time. Um, I would be shocked to great measure to find that in the first century in Greek that that word was used only for royalty. Now, maybe it was used of royalty, but not only of royalty. And so it really doesn't matter how we use the word hail today. Um, what matters is how it was used in the language that the New Testament was given to us in, Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament. So Jose, I would just say that that's incorrect. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, I queen, queen of Heaven is not a title that should be applied to Mary. Blessed Mother, Mother of Jesus, amen. Uh, queen of Heaven, no. Okay, Anthony says, I am convinced uh, young people know about history. After I watch your or video, I am worried. Well, okay, um, Anthony, I'm so glad you mentioned that video. We've put up on the YouTube channel. Now, I did this without notifications. Uh, for some reason, I said, listen, this isn't the normal kind of thing, but I put up an amazing series by the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr about the history of revival and spiritual awakening. It's really good. Anthony, you are a young man who knows more about history because you're listening to that series. And I just recommend it to you and ask that people tune into it and enjoy it. Uh, we'll have the last couple videos up uh, probably within the next 24 hours or so. Okay, let me continue on here. Um, Prath or Prath, Prathop says, praise the Lord, Pastor David, do apostles supersede patriarchs of the Old Testament in heaven? Uh, I wouldn't use that term supersede. They're different. Apostles and the patriarchs are different. There's some overlap in the sense that they are, in a sense, foundational, and God used their work as something to build upon, but they're different. It's just not the same. So I wouldn't say they supersede. I would just say that they have different functions in God's great plan. I, I hope that helps you there. Uh, Levy says, uh, Yet when you seek the Lord your God, from there you shall indeed find him if you search after him with all your heart and soul. Deuteronomy 4.29. Amen to that. Um, Tistu asks again, can you explain Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 and 17? What is the mark of the beast? Well, I can just tell you uh, from those passages in the book of Revelation, it doesn't exactly tell us. It's some kind of mark having to do with, it does say the right hand, doesn't it? With the hand and or, and or the forehead. And it doesn't specifically tell us what the mark was. Um, you know, people could assume, and maybe for many times throughout history, it's been assumed to be a tattoo. Uh, I know people have thought in terms of a barcode or something like that. But honestly, we're just not told what the mark is. And so I think this is one of the areas where we have to say we don't really know exactly what form the mark of the beast will take, uh, simply than just to say that we know that it will happen. It says, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. So... This is just simply what we're told. We're not told specifically what the mark is. And of course, today, we have a modern vocabulary for speaking about these things that was not available to John when he wrote the book of Revelation. So, you know, we can talk about microchips and capsules implanted under the skin and this and that and the other thing. But all we can say confidently is that the Bible tells us it's a mark. That's just what we know. Um, Kentucky says, 
Can a Christian be an intellectual anarchist, meaning he obeys the state, but simply thinks that we would be better off without it? Okay, since you're talking about in an intellectual sense, Kentucky, I would say that anarchy or anarchism is not compatible with the biblical frame of mind. The biblical frame of mind believes in government. It talks about human government being the instrument of God. And it also talks about the ultimate government that Jesus Christ will establish. When Jesus rules and reigns in perfection on this earth, it will not be no government, it will be perfect government. And I think the Bible's answer to bad government, which there's lots of in the world today, there's no doubt about that. The Bible's answer to bad government is not no government, it's godly or at least ethical government. So the mere fact that God shows no anarchist impulse in the scriptures, but that God is a God of government himself, shows not, again, I want to emphasize this, not to say at all that the governments of this world are always right. No, they are often corrupt and foolish and wicked. That's just true. You can see it with your own eyes. But again, God's answer to that is not no government, as in anarchy, but rather a better government and ultimately the government that Jesus Christ himself will bring. Okay, I'll uh, get into a few more questions here. Um, Pratha says, why did the women go to the tomb if they didn't expect it to be open? We know from the Lazarus account that the body would be smelling by the third day, so why did they bring spices to prepare the Lord's body? Okay, uh, good question, brother. And I think the best, most logical answer for this is um, they came out of devotion and out of hope. Uh, first of all, they just said, we don't know who's going to roll the stone away for us. We'll figure that out when they get. Now, they knew that the tomb was being guarded by soldiers. And if the soldiers were there and under their supervision, if the women said to the soldiers, could you guys please roll away the stone? We need to finish the proper preparation for this body. You're welcome to stand guard around us here so you know that we don't steal the body. Can you do that? that that's not illogical at all. That could very well happen. And as far as it, because a hurried job was done by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus on the day Jesus died, because that hurried job was done on that day, they wanted to prevent the body of Jesus from smelling even more. And so what they were going to do is basically cover up the smell of that decomposing body with the ointments and perfumes and such that they brought. So I, I would say the most logical is they expected the soldier to hope that the soldiers would roll it away. And they just wanted to complete a job. And they knew that it would be awful work, but they were just there ready to do it out of devotion to Jesus. Um, let's see here. Uh, Mark of the Beast. Okay, one more from T says, uh, and also, who or what is the beast? We understand it's not a literal dragon or beast. So what exactly is it? Again, this is a, a question that Christians over the centuries have given many different answers to, but I'll give you my understanding of this T. My understanding is simply this that it is a person, it's an individual. I believe that that makes the most sense. Uh, some people try to say it's a government, it's a governmental system, it's a symbol, it's this, that. But th there is an individual that the Bible speaks about. The prince who will come in Daniel, the man of sin of uh, Thessalonians, um, the beast described here, the, the Antichrist, or at least the ultimate manifestation of man Antichrist mentioned in uh, 1 John. This person who is mentioned in many different ways in the, the scriptures, um, I think that this is an individual, and this is the beast. It's a final world leader uh, 
who will lead the world in a very organized opposition to God. So uh, I'm looking at the time here. We're getting pretty much close here. I'm going to just take one more question here from Z, who says, my friend believes the book of Jonah is satire. What are your thoughts on this? Z, that's a um, idea that several people have put forth. So your friend's not alone in that thinking. Um, I, I won't say that that's impossible, but it's not the interpretive approach that I would take. I, I, I would take it as being much more literal than many modern scholars are comfortable accepting. So I, I believe it's literal, um, but I, I wouldn't consider a person a heretic for trying to explain it as satire. I guess that's the best way I would say. I, I consider it to be literal. Well, uh, I'm going to end this here. Thing. One more thing from Ruth says, uh, precept Bible studies have in-depth studies verse by verse. Yes, that's right. Precept Bible studies, and I'll recommend another one to you, Bible Study Fellowship, BSF. Those are things where people get together in groups often, though I suppose there could be individual work done, uh, that do an excellent job walking people through the scriptures. So uh, that is a good recommendation there, Ruth. Thank you for that. Well, look, we've hit about the 50-minute mark, and that's usually when I wrap it up. And so we're going to do so today. Thank you so much for joining me on today's question and answer. I hope to be here next Thursday, God willing, and if we live. And I enjoy these times. I hope you enjoy them. Thank you for those who subscribe and do the notifications or whatever. If you want to, do it. If you don't want to, well, God bless you. It doesn't really all that matter that much to me. I am grateful for the increased subscriber count to our channel. That's been a blessing. And uh, we're just grateful that uh, people seem to be interested in what God is doing here through Enduring Word. So God bless you. Thank you. We'll see you again next Thursday. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.